Hey friends, welcome back to the journal feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to get spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. We just want to keep you guys up in the literature, and that's why we are here to spoon-feed you. Now, let's take a quick look ahead at everything that we'll be covering. First off, NOR Test 2, testing a dose of tenecteplase. Second, sea collars. Sometimes they make us feel better than they actually make our patients better. Third, febrile infant guidelines from the AAP, just a quick reminder. Fourth, don't be fooled, ECGs, well, they can trick you. And then fifth, a kind of untimely refresher on frostbite. Now, if you're hearing this right now, then you are not currently a Journal Feed subscriber, and so you're not going to be getting the full Journal Feed podcast, only receiving a portion of the past week's articles. Don't worry, they're all still good ones, but if you would like to get full access to both the podcast and the blog, then, well, you'll have to become a member. All the details for that are at journalfeed.org, where, remember, if money is a barrier for you, then just reach out to us and we can help you out. Now, this is the audio version of the past week's summaries, which this week were brought to you by the hard Carmen Wolf, Rebecca White, Davin Brar, Ernie Hanna, Aaron Lacey, and Clay Smith. Okay, so let's jump over to the second article, titled The Fate of the Cervical Collar, an observational pilot study investigating follow-up care after emergency department discharge in children with mild traumatic neck injuries, out of the Pediatric Journal of Emergency Care. Now, if you can't clear the C-spine in a pediatric patient, then you're, well, you're a bit stuck, and you might be sending them home with a rigid collar, just in case they actually have an unstable fracture. Which, this can then be sorted out at a later date during follow-up. I sometimes find it hard to get adults to wear their collars for just a few hours in the emergency department. I cannot imagine kids wearing it for possibly weeks on end. This was a prospective observational trial of 98 children with mild cervical injuries at a level 1 trauma center. All these patients had normal neurological exams and normal cervical spine x-rays. But they had persistent posterior neck pain when they were discharged. They all left in a rigid collar with instructions on how to use it as well as being given follow-up. This is kind of hilarious, but not at all surprising. 47% stopped wearing the collar without any follow-up. The other half actually did what they were supposed to. The average time to follow-up was 11 days plus or minus 4.9, and the average collar compliance was 10 days minus 5.7. So you'll notice that, you know, collar compliance was less than the follow-up times. At the final follow-up with these patients, which only 52% responded to, 32 children had no pain after the collar came off, 14 had mild pain but no extended collar use, and then three had some pain with limitations. Finally, there were two that had significant continued pain, one kept the collar on for one more week and then was cleared, and then the last one actually had to get a C-spine fusion for an odontite fracture. Now, I would tend to say that this practice is probably unnecessary to be sending these patients home in rigid collars, even if they have some persistent midline pain, which is supported in the adult guidelines at least. Now, this study was also only using plain x-rays, which, you know, if they have persistent symptoms and there is concern for a fracture, then you could just get the CT. We've seen before, though, that children with C-spine fractures that are awake and conscious, they do not want to move their necks. In a spoonful, if 50% of patients can ignore your advice and be totally fine, then perhaps we need to refine our practices a bit. Adherence of pediatric patients to C-spine collars post-discharge, well, it was low. Then we make another jump over to the fourth article. 
titled Diagnostic Traps, Noteworthy Electrocardiogram Patterns out of the JAMA Internal Medicine. Since we tend to give nitro to STEMI patients, it's really important not to miss a right ventricular RV infarct on ECG since nitro will rob them of the preload that they so desperately need. This article was a case report of a man presenting for sudden onset chest pain. He had ST elevation in V1 and AVR with diffuse ST depression in the lateral leads. When he arrived at the hospital, they got right-sided leads and saw there was ST elevation in V3R through to V5R. In the cath lab, he had complete occlusion of the proximal non-dominant RCA. There are ECGs for all of what I'm about to talk about up on the blog. If you'd like to see them, it's kind of a visual topic. We are talking ECG patterns for isolated RVMIs today, which only occur in about 3% of patients with MIs, and they're going to tend to cause hypotension, jugular venous distension, and clear lungs. You have to think about fluids in these cases and avoiding those vasodilators we just talked about. Let's cover the two main ECG patterns for isolated RVMIs. So we call them right-sided leads for a reason. So you'll see SD elevation, which is going to be greater in V1 than in AVR, with slight ST elevation in lead 3, which is possible, but not any of the other inferior leads. ST depression can be seen in some, but should not be seen in all the other leads. Careful not to confuse this with a possible left main occlusion or triple vessel disease, which will be a little bit different, and you'll have ST elevation which will be greater in AVR than in V1, and ST depression in 8 or more leads. Then there's another pattern for isolated RVMIs, which you should also know. Here you'll see ST elevation in the anterior leads, which progressively decreases in amplitude from V1 as it progresses down to V5. SD depression should not be present in the inferior leads in this case. Again, be careful. This looks very similar to an anterior MI, but the key here is that the ST elevation amplitude gets progressively less from V1 down to V5. And then there are no reciprocal changes in the inferior leads. Okay, so it's kind of a tricky topic, and I know it's sort of a visual thing, but if you have V1 elevation more than AVR, or progressive decreases in the ST elevation from V1 will be the highest down to V5, which will be the lowest, then these are warning signs of isolated RVMI. In a spoonful, recognizing isolated RVMIs can change management, so this is a worthy place for your attention. All right, so that's it. Let's do a quick wrap-up of everything we learned today. What did we learn? Second, nearly 50% of children or the families of those children will clear their own C-spines if you send them home in a rigid collar after discharge, if they had normal x-rays and a normal neuro exam, but persistent midline pain. Fourth, watch out for those subtle, isolated RVMI patterns. This could change your management. Links to all the articles summarized can be found at journalfeed.org, where you can also find the newsletter, which is the best place to make the podcast into a bite-sized nugget of space repetition so you can remember all of this research better. Now, if you're feeling a little bit left out, if you feel like you'd like to hear more of this podcast, then come over and please join us at the members feed. All the details, like I said, journalfeed.org. Our goal here is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding, and so we're trying to help you keep up with the latest research, one spoonful at a time. Thank you.